Hello and welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Ontario. Episode 30. No more teaching principles. Hello, you're very welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Anshad.net. My name is Simon Lewis. Now, being a teaching principal is an impossible job. Now, this might be the least controversial sentence I've probably ever said on this podcast. Yet, there are roughly 1,800 people doing this very job day in and day out. In this episode, I'm going to propose that if I were the Minister for Education, there would be no such thing as a teaching principal. There's a lot of talk um, with the budget um, at the moment, and at this time of the recording, um, it, I'm recording this actually before the budget. I think the episode is going to go out shortly after the budget is announced. Um, but basically, there's a bit of talk while I'm while I'm here uh, about uh, providing principals with uh, one day of admin work per week, so a release time uh, of one day a week. Um, but I mean. To me, and even if that does happen, and I actually don't think it's going to happen completely, I, I hope, I mean, I don't mind if I'm wrong or not, but um, the talk is about one day a week. But is one day a week to do your admin work um, enough? Is it, it, is it not just a smokescreen? I mean, there's ultimately one day a week, there's loads of problems with the model of having one day a week for principals to do their admin work. I mean, the first is who's going to work that one day a week? I mean, if you're, I mean, you can get five schools together and create a panel and someone can get a full-time job. I mean, that, that helps, but they're still working one day, one day, one day, one day, one day, rather than a week on, maybe four weeks off, a week on, four weeks off. That might even be better. I don't know. Um, there's a lot of those questions that have to be asked. But also, who's going to who, who's going who's going to actually make this work for for the substitute that's going to come in? I mean, the the, the principal, the teaching principal is going to do it anyway. And I mean, I've been this soldier. I've been a teaching principal. Um, and the one day a week isn't enough. I mean, even two days a week isn't enough. I mean, now I'm in a bigger school. I have 183 admin days a year. Uh, in fact, and that's not enough. I, I work the entire month of July and, and half of August to cover my admin work uh, these days. Um, I, I call myself, I do, I do normal, normal people hours. Um, and I, work, I still work over 50 hours a week during the year. The amount of work that's expected um, is not sustainable. And we know that um, because uh, the National Principals Forum did a survey last year. 99% of principals said that the work that their job is unsustainable 70 percent of them seven out of ten said that their health is suffering because of the job and how could 37 or 38 days a year release time for a teaching principal be enough to cover all the work um, it, it that, that that's expected of them it's it's just it just doesn't make sense but yet the various representative bodies are banging on every single year after year after year calling for this false utopian vision and um, that one admin day per week or, or whatever term they're using now i think they changed the name to leadership and management days or something something some business speaking i just don't understand why they just wouldn't call it um administrative release days but anyway um that's 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 really nothing to do with it i at the same time i don't know how it's going to solve the problem to be honest with you i mean maybe 20 years ago it when when the bodies first started calling for it i mean the fact is this isn't a new thing that people are calling for this has been going on for years, looking for administrative release days for um, for principals, uh, teaching principals. Um, like, it didn't, it may have had clout back 20 years ago, but these days, you know, the, the, the workload has increased so much 
and it's changed, particularly in the last decade, that in terms of administrative workload, one day a week isn't going to cover anything. It's not going to cover enough. It's not going to cover even nearly enough. Not two days a week isn't going to cover enough. I mean, just I mean, I, I was just thinking. I was just thinking of all the new jobs that I've had in the last decade, and um, that require huge amounts of administrative work. And I mean, this is only from the top of my head that I'm about to tell that I'm that, that I'm thinking of at the moment of, in the last decade. I mean, just just to give you some examples. So, for example, a child that's missing twenty days of school or more. So. When I started my job um, 12 years ago, if somebody missed 20 days of school, I'd ring my educational welfare officer um, in the NEWB and they'd take over. They'd, that was it. That was all I had to do. I mean, the, the only other thing I had to do was fill in a, a form every term uh, to say to list the, to the children who are missing school. That, that was it. I didn't actually have to do any other paperwork. Now, if I have a child who's missed 20 days or more, and I, I basically have to now go through several initiatives to, sh- to prove that I have been trying to get this child to come to school. I, d- I don't know how I do this as a principal to, to in- uh, incentivize uh, children to come to primary school. I think, I think that's their parents' jobs. But that aside, um, once I have tried on paper all these initiatives and have proof that I have these initiatives, I have to fill in a six-page form to, uh, stating and collating all those initiatives, what I've tried to do, how I've tried to do them, wh- wh- why they failed, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then... And, and, and and then maybe the NEWB will get involved. That's a huge amount of extra work. I'm just trying to think of another one. Let's go to getting an SNA, um, for example. So when I started my job, I, and I felt a child needed an SNA, I'd make a phone call to the CNO, and the CNO would generally maybe ask me a few questions on the phone, and I'd, I'd tell them what we were experiencing, and she would come over and she'd look, and she'd assess, and she would say, Okay, uh, maybe maybe we needed to give a psychological report recommending an SNA, but if that was there, done. Now it's 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 just paper. It's 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 like I have to kill trees. I have to murder some trees to to get one uh, little bit of extra help. What I mean, what I have to do is, I mean, okay, fine. You get your you have your psychological report. That that hasn't changed. But now you have to um, fill in all sorts of other forms, BCN one forms if the child has behaviours. Report after report after report. Time, I mean, of things that are happening in school. The te- the teacher is writing down. Um, reams of pages around around incidents that are happening on a daily basis going through the continuum of support proving that things they're trying are are, are failing i mean knowing that the child is going to fail um but writing but basically proving it over a 12-week period um, giving timelines of the interventions that we've done and so on i mean getting a new s and then if we have more than one if you have an sna in the school what they what you have to do is prove that that sna can't be in six places at once um, and, and or if you have 10 SNAs in your school, you have to prove that the 10 SNAs can't be in, in 60 places at once. I mean, it takes, it can take, depending on how, uh, how big your school is, but even, even well, certainly in my size, a size school, which is about 400 pupils, it takes weeks, weeks to collect just the paperwork to get a smidgen of, uh, of an SNA. Um, what else? So I, I'm, I'm in a DASH school, and, and um, if, uh, so we're part of, the sc- in, in part of the school completion program, or as I, I christened it there a while back, the form completion program, which, which probably tells you a lot. Um, when I started in the school completion program at the time, um, we had a list of children who we thought were vulnerable, and the school completion program worker would work with that child. We'd identify them, um, and the school completion program would work with them. Now, 
okay, after you, you, you to, in order for the school commission program to work for them, you have to fill in a form, okay, and uh, it's about a couple of pages long um, about why they need the help. I get that for GDPR, that's fine. But after the first intervention, if they need more help, which is in, in, in lots of cases they do, there's a form now, it's 14 pages long, 14 pages long um, to get an, any, any further interventions with the school completion program. It's, 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 it's amazing, it's shocking. Um, to see that, I mean, if you're in a rural Dutch school, I, I'm sure you're, you know, I'm an admin principal. I mean, I, I barely have the time to do it, to, to fill out a one page form, never mind a 14 page form. If you're a teaching principal in a, in, in a school completion program, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where you'd find the time to do it. Um, in fact, I'm sure you don't have the time to do it. But I mean, I just mentioned it there. The excuse seems to just be GDPR all the time. But the reality is we've let this slowly happen. We really have let this happen in a way. I mean, if you look at SSE, for example, it's another paper exercise. It, it, it really, it hasn't actually improved um, educational outcomes, no matter what um, the government are pretending to say. That was put in after our PISA results went down as a blip into, uh, you know, back in 2009. And it went back to normal within three years. I mean, that wasn't as an effect of the SSE, of SSE yet that's what's been claimed. Oh, SSE made our, 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 our improved outcomes. It didn't. It didn't have a. It didn't have an iota of a thing, um, and and if it was true, our PISA results should be going down right now because there was an there was an embargo uh, put put upon us by the INTO uh, from doing um, SSE. So I mean, if we, if that hasn't happened, then surely that proves the point. But anyway, then child protection. I mean, we've now got a sixty-five point checklist that we have to fill out every single year to prove that we're compliant with child protection. I mean. 65 and i mean just look at the 65 points on the on the, on the checklist and and some of them are ridiculous i mean almost all of them are ridiculous it doesn't and i mean to be fair to um to be fair to the to, to sheila noonan who was the um head of uh, the into at the time um the general secretary um even she was uh, awoken from her slumber to kind of say what you know i mean that that's these 65 point checklists would do nothing to make a child feel even more protected in the school um, but yet we're doing it. Um, and of course, let's not forget my favorite subject of all, DRID. And now I have another big folder in my, um, in, my, in, in my office full of paper that I have to tick, which is meaningless, meaningless, because basically what DRID simply does is a teacher comes out of college and they basically, you know, you basically pretend to do stuff. And at the very end, they go, they basically say, yeah, I'm, I'm grand. And you, you just have a load of paper to fill out you know, there's there's nothing there's no it's not there's no um there's nothing to do except prove that the person is engaged with Drihid, which means you know they've observed been and been observed twice, and they believe that they're fine now to carry on as a as a permanent teacher or whatever, or a, or a, whatever the word is probation is not the right word anymore. They they have this new word which means exactly the same thing but isn't called probation. Um, but I mean all these things are. are just more and more and more paperwork and Drihid is coming into small schools this year or is it next year and I mean how is the teaching principal going to deal with that um anyway these days we have to keep notes on absolutely everything uh, that happens in school as well I mean I'm trying to think again like forget these agencies they're they're the agents that's enough but think about your day-to-day -day work because everything that happens in school now we we need to record it due to the due to the prospect of legal action we really live in a very litigious society in Ireland, ridiculously so. I mean, remember when you were young and you fell you, you, and you cut your knees or whatever, or you banged your head or whatever it might be, 
you know, no one thought about suing the place where you fell, but that's what happens now. You, you know, if it, it, there's no, um, do you know, because people know all you have to do. Some people, I'm not saying all people do this, but enough people in the school the community know that if a child falls, there's a very good chance there's a payout coming out at the end of it. And if you're going to be getting 10 grand for yourself, um, do you know, because your child falls, I mean, you know, you kind of think about taking it if it was, if it was an option. And that's kind of what's happening because that's, that, that's, uh, that's basically, there's no, and also there's no risk because you don't lose any money by, um, by taking action. But like, for example, as I said, there a child falling on your 20 years ago, <laughs> you know, your parent might get a phone call. <laughs> Maybe if his leg was falling off. I don't know. Today, the slightest graze and the incident has to be recorded how it happened, why it happened, what did the staff do about it. And this is generally followed up by a phone call with the parent. And all of this takes time, time that we don't have in the school day. And children fall every single day on yard, more than once. I mean, like, and you have to record all this stuff just in case it comes back to you. I mean, even look at behavior. Okay, 20 years ago, if a child misbehaved in class and there was a consequence, you know, the child wouldn't tell his mum at home because there'd be a second consequence. But, you know, but, but ultimately that would be the end of it. Today, you have to record what happened, why, what interventions are going to be put in place so it doesn't happen again. Then there's a meeting with the parent because more and more of the parent is wondering how could their child ever be involved in any incidents because they're nothing like that at home. And, and sure, he wouldn't have done it if that so-and-so over there had done the other thing. And anyway, he says he didn't do it anyway and my child doesn't lie. I mean, you know all this as teachers. This, this is what we get on a daily basis. And I'm not saying it's all parents. Of course it's not. Um, that, are, that do this sort of stuff. But all it takes is one parent in your entire community and a small incident can actually take up to weeks and weeks and weeks of work. Um, and you don't have, we just don't have that time uh, to do it. And uh, certainly not with all the extra paperwork that comes with it. And you do have to record the fact that the parent doesn't agree that their child did the thing that you saw them do. And then, because you've told the parent that, um, that their child has done something that they believe their child hasn't done, the parent gets really offended and then they complain about you bullying their child. So then you have to defend yourself by writing down every single word you said to that child and that's another meeting. And then you have to go um, uh, and then record everything that you've said to the parent. And then the parent isn't happy with that meeting so they go and they want to bring that further along the complaints policy. So then you have to write another report for your chairperson and the board of management and that's another th uh, thing that happens. And then it keeps going and going and going. Um, look, obviously this is not in every case, but even if that happens once, once in a year, once in a 10 years even, do you know, it can cost huge amounts of time and paperwork, even if it goes nowhere. I mean, just think of the pro process of a complaints procedure. You have to record everything that happens anyway in the first place. The parent doesn't like it, so they complain about you. So you have to record everything you've said, trying to resolve that meeting, even informally on your, in your own. It doesn't, I know it's an informal thing, but you generally write down what happened in case it goes further. Then... It, they might complain to the chairperson. The chairperson then comes to you again. You have to record what you said to the chairperson. Then it might go formal, and uh, the the so you actually have to write a report about what happened. Then it has to go. Then it might go f f uh, formal to the board of management. So again, you're writing out another report. Then if the board of management, you know, the board of management obviously are, are generally will be sensible. So they might go to the ombudsman, and then again, you have to be you have to record and write uh, uh, about something that you didn't do. I mean, ultimately, look, it all takes um, a lot of time. And then there's all the low-level stuff um, it, when, when it comes to special education needs. Back in my day, <laughs> back, I'm sounding old now, but back in the day, maybe 15 years ago, if a child needed learning support, 
they'd get it, basically. You, you wouldn't really do anything. You just say, look, kid is struggling in my class, any chance you could see them. And basically, you might have done a single page IEP as it was then, the, the um, individual education plan, perhaps, I mean, if the child needed it. Now, we have the continuous support, which is grand and all, and it's, it's, it is grand, actually, to be fair. I, I actually agree with the continuous support. It does, it does actually make a bit of sense, but it is more paperwork, a lot more paperwork. And then what about the growing number of children, I suppose, that are, um, you know, forget low-level uh, special education needs, learning needs, that's, that's reasonably straightforward. But what about the growing number of children who are actually exhibiting violent behaviours? Now, this goes back to last week's episode um, when we talked about violence um, to, to, to staff. And again, more and more and more time has to be spent on this because um, you can't just say to a child who's being violent sorry you gotta go i mean th- there's a huge process involving more and more and more and more paperwork um, and more and more time um to be honest with you i actually don't know how any teaching gets done in schools where there's a teaching principal i actually don't and if i'm completely honest and if we're being completely honest with ourselves any class with a teaching principal isn't going to get the most optimal education because how could they how could they constant interruptions to the day must be par for the course um, I remember myself, every five minutes, someone would be knocking on the door. Well, not every five minutes, but a lot of the time, it felt like every five minutes, put it that way. There, and it was generally, um, uh, you know, there, generally there isn't enough, um, because there's generally not, not enough secretarial support. So smaller schools actually get very little secretarial support, which, which obviously makes no sense. So when you didn't have your secretary and the doorbell would somehow ring all the time, it was funny, when you, when you actually had your secretary there, the phone, the, the, the phone wouldn't ring or the doorbell wouldn't ring. But as soon as I left, sure, the doorbell was ringing nonstop through the day, Johnny had forgotten his lunchbox. Do you ha- someone said, do you have a minute, sorry? Or someone was coming in, I was just passing, I just wanted to tell you about this great deal on toilet paper, whatever, you know. And then you'd have the door knocking every five minutes. Sorry, sorry to disturb you now. Sorry now to be disturbing you, uh, teacher there. But Jimmy has wet himself. Do you ha- um, or do you, sorry, sorry, do you have a minute? Or could you talk to Mary here? She won't do her work and so on and so on. All that sort of stuff. Now I know um, people will say to you, um, don't let that happen in your school now. Don't you tell, you make sure that doesn't happen. Um, but you can't stop this stuff from happening all the time. I mean, you can, you can kind of try, but you know, there's constant interruptions. Anyway, combining all this stuff, look, the job is impossible. And ultimately, it, it just shouldn't exist anymore. I don't believe there is any hope of rolling back on our workload um, to what it was even a decade ago. Our unions basically, our union uh, basically has rolled over time and time again over the, the last decade, allowing all this extra stuff to happen. They never stopped it. They never tried to stop it. And and uh, unfortunately, we're, we're, we're stuck with the with the workload that we have. But ultimately, with more than half of Irish schools employing a teaching principal and simply putting an admin principal to every school in the country isn't going to work either. It would, I mean, it would, if you kind of replaced every teaching principal in the country with an admin principal, it would actually cost over 100 million euro a year, which obviously makes no sense. So what would I do? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, that's the, I mean, the obvious, I suppose what I'm saying is that's the obvious solution. No more teaching principals, just make them into admin principals straight away. But ultimately, I mean, uh, I, I, I have to live in the real world. I don't think uh, we can justify 100 million uh, euro uh, plus um, every single year. I mean, over 10 years, that's a billion um, euro um, just 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 with a simple solution i don't know look uh, you might disagree with me but given that i'm not going to spend a, a billion euro in a decade um for uh, what would i actually do if i was handed the reins of the department of education tomorrow i don't think i get the billion euro for 10 years look to be honest with you um 
that's probably where uh, <laughs> maybe I should just stop and say, yes, that's the answer. I would uh, spend o- over 100 million euro a year just converting teaching principal jobs to uh, admin principal jobs. But I can't, I, I'm not going to do that because ultimately it's irresponsible, um, I suppose, number one. But secondly, it actually wouldn't solve the problem, um, the, ma- the bigger problem. I mean, the, the, the biggest problem in education, or I suppose in this, in this uh, episode really, isn't um, that in isolation, teaching principles shouldn't exist the thing is even if we were to move all teaching principles and turn them into administrative principles we'd actually not be solving a much bigger problem and to be honest with you the rest of this episode might not please you then for two reasons firstly um there's a lot of repetition in it um from a previous episode that i did uh, about um uh during the summer so about 12 weeks ago uh, where i talked about small schools um, but secondly, my solution isn't going to be very popular, I, I suppose. It's, 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 it's I mean, I, 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 it tries to be realistic um, in some ways, but um, it's, it's probably not the most popular thing. Um, I basically had dedicated the entire month of July 2019 to small schools to coincide with, with, with what happened with the small schools symposium. Um, and which I, and I basically at that time, I argued that it did effectively nothing to save small schools or teaching principals positions. And it's a, a position I still, I still hold uh, three months later, um, given that the small schools symposium still hasn't done anything or nothing's come from. I'm, I'm, I'm reliably told that everything's going to change soon. Um, but um, I, 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 I believe it when I see it. And if I do see it, uh, I'll report on it here on a future podcast. But any school that has a teaching principle must be considered to be a small school um, because they are. That's, <laughs> so any school with 180 or, 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 uh, or pupils or less or fewer, okay? So if effectively you've got a roughly 180 kids or less in your school or fewer in your school, you are um, a small school. Um, generally around the, or, or around the world, the optimal class school size is around 400 to 500 pupils. So um, I'm even being generous there. But anyway, so when I talk about small schools for this purpose of the episode, um, it is with a focus on the principles of these schools. And in fact, you could probably say that in order to have no teaching principles, one has to intrinsically link the plight of small schools with the plight of teaching principles. They're actually you can't untangle them. It's, you can't have one without the other, okay? It's love and marriage here, which, of course, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. I mean, obviously, you know, small schools have teaching principles. So if you got rid of teaching principles, then there's going to be an effect on small schools. Um, so the episode in July, if you haven't heard it, basically, I'm not going to go into ver- uh, repeated verbatim because obviously that's, uh, you know, you can just basically, uh, w- would take too long. It was four parts, so it took, it was almost four hours of footage. Um, basically, it explored the history of small schools, government policy in Ireland and beyond Ireland. It looked at various models around the world, including countries with similar context to Ireland in terms of rural schools. And one of the biggest criticisms that was aimed at people who suggested the various options uh, that, that to replicate, let's say, in Ireland, was that they didn't understand the small school in Ireland. So effectively, you know whatever suggestions were put out there it was met with they were all met with resistance now as i said you can listen to the entire episode which is uh, which is quite long um at your leisure but in this episode i'm just going to focus on one interesting part of it to me so the most interesting part of, to me anyway was um focused on a 2004 paper uh, written by the irish principles uh, irish primary principles network the ippn now to me when it's at its best the ippn was a great agitator. And I mean that in the best possible sense of the word in the education space. It, you know, it famously got itself into trouble over the years and for, for various stances. And to be honest, it's 
it's really what attracted it uh, to me um, when I first came upon it, uh, when I became a principal um, and I went to my first conference. I loved the fact that it was a little bit of an agitator, a disruptor. And my favorite moments uh, always centered around uh, the IPPN conference uh, when uh, its former CEO, Sean Cottrell, made his speech at the conference where he would happily uh, tear strips out of the education minister um, every year, whoever it was, and always in a very, very clever um, and funny way where you couldn't be offended particularly. It was, it was, it was, it got his point across in the best possible way. However, outside of the conferences, my favourite moment really was uh, of, of the IPPNs was when Sean Cottrell, who was the CEO, went off on a solo run and, deci- and cried homework at primary level uh, in the national new- uh, newspapers. And he got into loads of trouble uh, from IPPN members at the time. Um, it, uh, that, that was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now. But it's interesting to see how forward thinking he was at the time. I mean, I, I agreed with him. Obviously, I still agree with him. Um, I mean, but homework at primary level is actually starting to lose its grasp on the on the nation with more and more people beginning to see the pointlessness of it uh, in its current state. Anyway, um, in 2004, um, which is about 15 years ago at the time of recording, the IPBN did a massive study around the small school where they sent principals, uh, groups of principals all over the world um, to find out how they worked with regards to small schools, rural schools generally. And the principals deliberately went to countries where there were large numbers of rural schools, like, for example, in Sweden and parts of Spain, like Catalonia and Spain. Um, and the study was actually really really good it was a brilliant study and i'd actually urge you to listen back to the to episode 20 or even read that 2004 paper by the ippn which suggested a number of models that work really well around the world the trouble was that all the models there um uh, around the world in ireland principles were just totally against them and, and and the reasons were frankly unsurprising given the context of schools in ireland um, and because of the context, basically, and the context I'm talking about is basically all schools in Ireland are basically mini private fiefdoms. And that's the best way I can put it. They're, 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 they're not joined together. They're, you know, and basically nobody wanted to lose their fiefdom. And the solutions that were put out there were basically um, that they wanted were simply sticky plasters, really. Effectively, what principals wanted were informal clusters and they also wanted one day a week for admin. <laughs> and, and really, the IPPN, I think, gave in. Uh, I think I said this in the episode. Despite all their really good research, they, 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 they gave in and they basically said, yeah, we want informal networks. And they became the, those, those meetings you probably go to. Um, and also, they, they, they've been fighting for one day a week um, admin uh, uh, release time for, for, for principals. So what happened, basically, as a result of that study, basically, 2005 paper that IPN, and the IPN obviously aren't responsible for this, but um, the INTO and all the other representative bodies would have, would have fallen in with this thing of basically one day a week for teaching principals. Um, what happened? Well, 12 years, within 12 years, 400 small schools are no more, basically. There are, there are 400 fewer small schools um, today than there were when that study happened. And more and more and more are closing shop every year since. I mean, you can't, it, I'm kind of, you know, uh, I'm finding it hard to, for a month to go by uh, without a school closing in Ireland right now. Um, so basically doing nothing isn't actually saving small schools, nor is it saving by, by that process, um, if it isn't saving small schools, it's not, their teaching principles are gone too. They're linked. 
The key sentence basically in the conclusion of the study was, and this is the sentence, I'm just quoting it, there is a lack of understanding among larger schools for the plight of smaller schools. Now, in this part of the episode, I concluded that I couldn't for the life of me understand what I was not understanding. The bizarre thing is that since that episode, when the subject arises, I've really, really tried to find out what it was that I wasn't understanding and I've yet to hear anything, anything that people say that it would actually save a small school. I mean, even if the government did throw that over 100 million a year to make every principal in the country an admin principal, small schools would continue to close down at the same rate that they're closing anyway. So it wouldn't save teaching principal positions or principal positions. So in effect, while it might solve the problem of not having teaching principals anymore, it wouldn't actually save people's jobs in the long term. Now, I'm not sure that's a solution anyone would be looking for. In fact, the government could even reduce class sizes solo, like to lower, like even to a one-to-one basis, and it still wouldn't save small schools or teaching principals. The problem we have is not actually government created, but sort of anyway. I mean, ultimately, I mean, it is government created, but it is a policy that's widely supported no matter what side of the education sphere you're standing. Um, and the, this, this policy is that the idea of school choice is correct. You talk to anyone, probably except me, um, I, I think, <laughs> maybe other people do agree with me, but everyone thinks that we need choice in terms of primary education. I, 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 I don't think I've ever really met too many people that would agree with that. But this is the problem. It's actually a massive problem. All the suggestions that are made through all the research have fallen because of that policy. It's actually impossible to have federations or hubs or amalgamations or whatever because, and this is, I'm quoting the IPPM paper here, the independence of schools and indeed of the principle of a small school is jealously treasured. Now, until that changes, you know, this idea of a fiefdom and until that actually changes nothing is going to save the small school there's no joint boards of management no PIEWs no partner planning or whatever has been coming out lately in efforts not to offend anyone or trying to solve the problem and I mean the reason I mention all this is because in a way the current system of doing nothing is actually a solution to the problem of having teaching principles because the fewer schools there are the fewer principles that are needed so in a way you are actually solving the problem of having teaching principals because as soon as a school closed down, you have one, le- one less teaching principal. But at the current rate, at the current rate right now, because in, 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 over every decade, um, in the last decade, 12, uh, over 12% of, school, uh, of small schools are no more. Um, so basically, the current rate of small schools either closing down or becoming big schools, in 50 years' time, there's actually going to be less than 2,000 primary schools in the country. That's a third wiped out. And very few of them are going to be small schools. Um, so, yes, it naturally solves the issue of not having teaching principles. But is that really the way we want to go? Basically, a very, very slow turf war game where basically the, um, it's going to be a kind of a question of the survival of the fittest by any means. I mean, in that episode uh, during the summer, I raised the question of a school in East Clare that was just on the verge of closing down. Okay, and... Uh, this was in the, in the Irish Times. And the principal decided he was not going to let this happen. He took action and he opened up an after-school care and a pre-school care uh, place in the building. And the numbers of his school have increased as a result. But where are the new children coming from is the question I was asking. And it isn't like the area got a baby boom or something like that. Some other school in the area or some other schools in the area had to be suffering loss of numbers. 
and they're the one that might close down. So while this guy has probably saved his small school, there's probably a school up the road a couple of kilometers away that may close down as a result of this. So if the other school then says they're going to do something, okay, so they're about to close down, they go, whoa, we better do something. So they open an hour earlier and an hour later than this other school, then maybe everyone will return to their school. Um, and then maybe maybe another school up the road will go, oh no, we need to do something. They might add a crash. They might do that and then add a crash to the land. And then, you know, maybe they'll become the school that everyone goes to. And then another school goes, oh gosh, it might be advantageous for us because I noticed there's a lot of people who aren't actually um, Catholic uh, in the area because most of the schools in the areas will be Catholic. Um, gosh, if I divested, let's say, to the community national school model, maybe I'll get all the kids. So anyway, you see where this is going, don't you? There's, there's this myth of collegiality in our in our primary education system. But and effectively, we are very nice to each other. I mean, we, we have these networks, um, but we're not that nice to each other. You know, and I always use um, what, what, what's now known amongst principals as the cluster games as an example of this actually in action. Because, I mean, it's all very well. Everyone's going, oh, no, we all get on with each other. No, we never fall out. And we're always trying to help each other out. But when it comes, to, when push comes to shove and it comes to survival, we will do whatever it takes to screw over our neighbor. And let me explain the cluster games. Basically, every two years, well, I mean, it's only happened twice, but no one seems to be uh, fighting against it. Every two years... Um, we get things called set allocations. So that is a number of teachers allocated to our school um, to, uh, for, for special education teaching. Um, and basically you're given this ridiculous number. So you're given, uh, so basically you want 25 hours because that's a full-time teacher. So schools will get things like, you know, you, you think schools will get like 20 hours or 15 hours or something that you could cluster with another school. So you, you might have 15 hours and another school might have 10 hours. So you cluster together to make 25 hours. But no, the Department of Education give you hours like, um, 13.836 or you know 12.25 and you know they if you added the if you know if you add these kind of numbers together you're you're it's you're, it's, it's very hard to get 25 hours um without you know evenly it's almost impossible but you know they leave it to they basically what the department do is they there's the list, off you go, principles. And it's basically, as I call it, throwing crumbs at ducks. Um, there's this big squabble of survival to, to, to try and uh, make up 25 hours by any means possible. No, at no time do schools say, hold on, the hours have come down. How can we divide them up so that everybody in the, in the community gets 25 hours uh, in some way or another? No, what happens is whoever gets on the phone quickest, so basically your administrator principals basically get on the phone quickest. They see the list, they go, here, I've got 15.5 hours. Do you have, you? I see that you have um, 9.5 hours. Let's get together. And they, and, they, and they do it. Or worse, I mean, that's fine. Or worse, you'll have this school who says, look, I've only got 10.10 uh, hours and I need to save a teacher. I see you've got five hours, you've got five hours, you've got five hours, and you've got five hours. And, and and this other school has five hours. Let's get the five of you together and we'll make up a cluster. And then there's a load of schools that have 20 hours that basically can't get those five. You know, basically, you know where I'm going with this. They didn't care. No one cares and, and about each other. And I've, I mean, I, 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 I refused to engage in it this time around. And it was really interesting to see how it all worked. Look, I've spoken about this in previous podcasts. Um, but it really, to me, it just highlighted exactly how much collegiality there is in the, um, in the principal um among schools and principals and i i i express this on the um i uh on a, on a on the ippn and um and people generally agree yeah i mean it's true but what are they doing about it when it comes to this thing in a year and a half's time i bet the same thing will happen crumbs of ducks anyway to be honest with you i suppose this this comes down to 
you know, the survival of the fittest. And, and while the process of natural selection kind of amuses me in the, in the context of an education system that's almost entirely religiously run, it isn't actually a very good way to plan an education system. So if we've got situations where small schools are just closing randomly because some school up the road had a better idea than the other, like, I mean, randomly, does I mean, for example, that school in East Clare, I mean, there's no reason why that should stay open as opposed to like any of the other eight schools around it. It just had the best idea randomly. And now it's probably because of, of the, the uh, it's probably going to become the main school in the area and other schools will shut down around it. But it may not be the best positioned school um, to, 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 to have um, a big school. And, and you'll have people traveling even, you know, quite far to get to it. But anyway, it does leave us um in uh, with 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 some scenarios really two scenarios basically we can we can continue to do nothing and we can let the process of natural selection happen and within a couple of generations we're going to kill most rural schools off you know except and that, that might be fine to some people i mean but i don't think it is however it will leave a strange kind of haphazard hopscotch system where because of this random, the, the random decisions made by particular schools, they survive while better placed geographically anyway, schools will close down. And with this, we might have pockets of areas with no schools, like massive areas with no schools, and pockets of areas where there's smaller schools with teaching principles and other areas with them in principle, but basically a hodgepodge of, 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 of randomness, um, you know, due, due, due to randomness, basically. Um, that's one scenario. Or the second scenario is we can actually try and create systems that allow many schools to stay open in local areas and create systems to allow some teaching principles become admin principles and some teaching principles to have alternative positions in schools, probably management positions like deputy principalship uh, equivalents. Um, now, we have to make a choice basically between a lower number of schools with admin principles or the same number of schools with a lower number of principals spread across a few schools. There, there seem to be the two options. So have less schools and admin principals in those schools, or keep the same number of schools as we have, but just have, a, a, have less principals managing these schools. Um, and you have a prince basically an admin principal spread across a few schools. Ultimately, either way, we're still going to have the same number of principals in the end, you know, over time. I mean, you know, Give it 50 years and, and, and you'll still have the same result, except one will just be better than the other. Now, I don't think we should or we could shut down a load of schools and build big new ones to, to, to you know, I mean, I don't think that makes sense either. I don't think you should shut down, let's say, five schools in a 20 kilometer radius and then build one big one in the middle of it. That doesn't make any sense. Um, ultimately, you have to use what we have and utilize people strategically. So my solution to small schools, you might be disappointed to hear, is the same as my solution to getting rid of the teaching principle. And basically it's my hub model. Now, if you missed the final part of episode 20, here's basically my solution, which I'm gonna give a summary of because it was quite long. And I know we're already into our, you know, maybe 40th minute of this uh, episode. So I want to wrap this up as quickly as I can. Um, my preferred solution is basically school hubs, or even to use the correct terminology that the IPPN used in 2004, were the federation model, the federations of school. Now, I chose the word hub, but I should have chosen the word federation. And if I was using, uh, if I basically I was using the paper section, anyway, I like the word hub uh, because federation doesn't feel right to me. But basically, I believe we really need to look at trying to find ways to bring a load of small schools together to create one bigger school in some way, maybe over a different number of buildings. Now that doesn't mean, as I said, closing any of the existing schools. What it means is that one school in area, probably the biggest, becomes the centre of the hub of a number of smaller schools within a round distance. And my suggestion was no school would be more than 20 minutes drive from the centre hub. 
So any school within that time frame could become part of this hub or federation. The principal in the centre would become the admin principal and he or she would serve all of the schools in the hub and the principals in the other schools would remain as day-to-day -day school leaders and they'd basically be similar to deputy principals um, responsible for their small school, the kind of day-to-day -day sort of stuff, but they would be full-time teachers um, and um, pretty similar to what deputy principals are these days in a way in a big school. Um, now, there's loads of caveats that I covered in, in the episode before, uh, and I, I mean, I'm not going to go through all of them, but um, I, I'll just summarize what they were. Uh, shared facilities to sport, shared sport pitches, swimming pools, even to libraries. I even covered problems of having one full-time secretary based in different buildings, or based in one different building as, as the others. I go through different scenarios, like when a parent brings in a lunchbox in the middle of the day, or God knows what else, you know, and how that would actually work. Um, I talk about behavior and bullying problems. I talk about boards of management. I talk about people driving driving past their local school in the in, in the federation or the hub and going to the bigger school. I cover ethos. I dive into ancillary staff and even think about school lunches and using the schools as bases for local communities like uh, to provide those school lunches like cafes, restaurants, supermarkets. I think about transport systems that not only benefits the schools but also the entire region where the, the hubs are and I do it using electric buses not to, so I even save the environment. I figure out a way to include second level schools in the mix and I suggest how preschools and after school services could benefit from the model as well. I also uh, proposed that I would reopen pubs, guard stations, post offices and areas, and I even stretched to churches, uh, but more importantly to me anyway, doctor surgeries. And the thing is, with all of, even with all of this, we might have, and with all of this, we might have a stable working model for primary schools. And linked with that, we will have no more teaching principles. And I feel though it's worth repeating some of the other thoughts I might have had for this model that tried to save small schools, but also, um, that also uh, saved basically basically got got to the point where there were no more teaching principles and here it basically is more or less what could we lose with this model okay so we basically we are we have the same number of buildings but we only we basically have only admin principles and some of those admin principles could be running six or seven schools maybe less i mean probably five or six enough anyway that um uh, uh, enough anyway that uh, would justify them so what do we lose with this model well firstly rural schools will lose some of their autonomy and that's fair enough and um, they're also going to lose some of their independence and some members of staff will actually lose status so the current teaching principals would would lose status um, but we also have to ask what's gained by these losses and i think this is where communities will have to make decisions which leads me to my next point this model can only work with buy-in from not just schools but also from communities and i guess this hub model can only work if communities do buy into them and i also guess we're going to have to accept that given the level of opposition uh, to any of the solutions since 2004 and the fact that they seem to be cemented that the cell would be very very difficult and it's interesting to even know and i've said this before in this episode that uh, finding um the finding of the ippm paper have somehow made the feelings of rural schools even stronger um, than they were so even though the IPPM paper suggested lots of different models, what it seemed to do was um, in a way cement um, the, the, um, the view that having um, a, a informal clustering, um, so like these networks, um, it cemented those feelings. You know, they seem to genuinely believe that these loose cluster arrangements are working even when hundreds of schools are closing in front of their very eyes. And even if the government pumped endless money and chopped the pupil-teacher ratio to even to a one-to-one -one ratio, it's not going to save the schools or that by, by 
by, defend, uh, by definition, principles. So even if every small school principal was given full admin duties, it wouldn't save small schools. And even if every small school got a brand new building, it wouldn't save them all either. So in fact, it may be impossible to propose this solution while my mindsets are so cemented in a particular way. However, on top of that, there are other mindsets. There are such things as school choice, different patron models and so on, which makes schools compete for resources. And by resources, I mean children, and I've gone into this. Maybe we have to remove these variables before we even start thinking about this hub model. You can't really work it if you've got like particular different models of schooling, different patron bodies. But, the, all, even, but even that aside, we're actually running out of time. And I've said this now maybe three times in this episode. There are hundreds of small schools closing every decade. We actually have to act quickly. We're basically left with our two choices. We can stay in the stalemate that we have and let schools and their communities shut down at random, or we can give every small community some sort of fighting chance of survival. And both of them are valid options, particularly if we're talking about no more teaching principles. However, if I was the principal of a small school, I would give it up to become part of a bigger hub. After all, the pay is basically the same, and I would have much less responsibility. I'd also be able to teach all day and any messages that would come could be passed on to the hub principal. Okay, yes, I definitely would lose a bit of my status uh, because I would no longer be a principal, but what is that really? Only to me is only ego. Yeah, we're going to have, if this model happens, we would definitely have far fewer principals in the system and this might not suit the various stakeholders. And when I say stakeholders, I don't mean the principals. I mean, maybe we're probably in suit principals, but certainly less so stakeholders in education, of which there are many. Um, because and the reason for that is there's less divide and conquer opportunities to be had. For example, when it came to post responsibilities the last time, didn't small schools win the pot of gold and big schools got very little? And I didn't hear an ounce of complaint from small schools. And why would I? Divide and conquer works. We see it in loads of aspects of the system already, and our representatives and the government have managed it brilliantly. And if they aren't pitting small schools against big schools, then they're uh, pitting denominational schools versus uh, multi-denominational schools, or it's mixed schools against uh, single-sex schools, or it's lower-paid teachers versus the pre-2011 teachers, or whatever. And we could go on. They pit schools against each other so that no progress can ever be made. And that's basically where I have to leave my thoughts. Ultimately, and unfortunately, whether we like it or not, if we are to have no teaching principles, it means that we are going to have to tackle small schools. And these solutions aren't new, and my favourite method may not suit everybody. In fact, it probably won't suit anyone. However, amalgamation appears to be a no-no, and I guess it might only work in urban areas where schools are actually right beside each other. However, doing nothing, as I say, will have the inevitable same outcome, but not in the day, and not in the way that we might want it in the long term. In fact, you could be the principal who has to leave their job because your school might have to close down through no fault of your own, only that the school up the road had a better idea than you had to stay open. However, one thing that must be considered before I close this episode is the following. But I actually like being a teaching principal. And interestingly, this isn't an unusual thing to hear. Um, lots of my colleagues really like the dual role of being a teacher and a principal. That's why they went to college. They didn't go to college to become an administrator. They became a they became they went to college to become a teacher. And um having the extra responsibility of principalship is something that they don't mind. However, it's not an unusual thing to hear despite the impossibility of the job. And sadly, I don't have an answer to this except to say that being an admin principal does not mean you can never teach again. Ultimately though, it is asking you to do the impossible. 
Doing both the job of a full-time teacher and a full-time administrator simply isn't something you can do anymore. Maybe you can, and if that's the case, but if that's the case, you're going to have to share it with the 99% of principals who said they couldn't sustain it anymore. On next week's episodes, I'm going to be focusing on money. Um, schools get a number of grants for, run, for the running of schools and, their, and various things. Um, and the capitation grant is the largest of these. And it's supposed to cover all of our utility bills and all the running costs of the school. And no one will be surprised to hear it isn't anywhere near enough. Rather than providing a capitation grant for the utilities, I think the capitation grant should be given to the school to buy the miscellaneous things, such as resources, photocopying, arts and crafts, and so on. And all utility bills, and all bills basically, should simply be charged directly to the Department of Education. And that's what I would be proposing next week that we do if I were the Minister for Education. I hope you enjoyed this episode and be sure to tune in every Wednesday morning just in time for your midweek slump. It is almost sure to get your blood boiling. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify or any other podcasting app by searching for either onshot.net or if I were the Minister for Education. I'd really, really appreciate you subscribing to the podcast so that each new episode will be available to you immediately after its release. And um, please also feel free to review this podcast uh, so others can find it more easily. Um, I hope uh, this episode uh, probably, um, I suppose it was probably disappointing uh, to some of you, um, but I hope I've uh, made the point that if we do nothing, we're going to have less teaching principles anyway, but not in the way that we might have wanted them. And uh, I mean, unless we come up with some sort of plan, maybe there is a third way, and there's always a third way if I've learned anything from uh, from change management, uh, we, we, we might try that too. So if you have any ideas yourself that might be any different to what's been coming, uh, that, that's been proposed, I'd love to hear from them. Um, so listen, that's it for me this week. Uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, it'll be, I was, we'll certainly have know where, what the budget um gave us uh, uh, at this time of the recording anyway for the next time and uh, listen thanks for listening and we'll see you next time thank you bye bye